Good afternoon with Dennis Fithian on Detroit Sports, ready to get things underway with podcast number 43. Coming up, how to feel about sports for the last three weeks in July. Right now, though, we bring in a special guest, Shemi Schembechler, a scout for the Las Vegas Raiders, joins me. Shemi, how are you? I'm doing great, Dennis. Thank you so much for having me on your show here today. Well, it's great to have you on. Uh, you know, it's a, a little bit taking me a little bit of adjustment saying Las Vegas Raiders, but you know, to roll off the tongue uh, before before no time. You know, a little little strange sounding, but you know, it does take a little bit getting used to. But I'll be all right. But you're a Dennis. You're exactly right. It took me a little bit of time as well. Yeah, well, you know what? Over the years, you you, you do it. You can still find, you know, some people. They'll, they'll, it'll be Oakland. It'll be L.A. The, I know. Last year, I was calling the, I was calling the Chargers San Diego an awful lot. So it takes a year. Very, or two. very interesting. <laughs> yeah. So you are a scout in the NFL, and you know, to me, that's that being a scout. That's just a great job in in sports. And you know, if I if I take you back, I know you you. Um, you, you worked. You, you went to Miami, just like your your dad, and and you yep. did, you you helped out on the coaching staff or on a staff. Was that Gary Moeller's staff before you you tried to get into the NFL? Is that how it worked? Yeah, you're exactly right. And so I was very fortunate at Miami University because I got to work for one of the great coaches in in Miami history, Randy Walker, who has now passed on. And Randy reminded me so much of my dad. He made such a great impact on me. Because uh, I was his head football manager at Miami, and so when I graduated, in many ways it prepared me for the grind of Michigan football. Because you can imagine, Dennis, how hard we worked, especially during the season and recruiting season, because we were putting in a hundred hours a week. And the opportunity to work for both Gary Moore and then subsequently Lloyd Carr, and then to have an office li- literally across the hall from my dad, because he had left the Detroit Tigers by that time when he was the president. And so I got to see Bo every day, and it was truly a very special experience for for myself and and being so close to my dad during that, that period of time. Yeah, I loved Randy Walker. Northwestern does a good job with uh, with the coaches they hire, and you know Walker, he was man that that guy seemed like he could talk about anything. There's no doubt. Yeah, yeah. he reminded me so much of my dad, Dennis. I mean, he was he, he was a grinder. He was old school, but he was funny too, just like Bo was, and. And the fact that we've lost both both of them uh, makes you appreciate them so much even more uh, now that they're gone. And you try to carry on their legacy as the best you, you can, you know? Sure. I do understand that. Uh, you know, you, mm-hmm. you worked to get into the NFL. You started what was the, the, the Chiefs. Uh, you know, how did you get that job? What did, what did you do as your first job uh, in the oh. NFL? Oh, Dennis, it was a grind, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> During our period of time, when you're putting in all those hours during recruiting, I, I, uh, my original plan was I wanted to be a recruiting coordinator. And so during that period of time, you had nine guys on your coaching staff, and the NCAA came out with legislation that said that one of the assistant coaches had to be the recruiting coordinator. Well, that basically X'd out my career in that because I wanted to see my dad go, son, there's no way they're going to hire a 22-year-old guy to run the recruiting because you're not going to coach on this coaching staff. So I started to look at some different options, and obviously with all the NFL scouts and personnel that come through the building, you start building these relationships. And Lloyd was so fantastic with me because he allowed me to be the pro liaison. 
so I could so I could talk with all these guys, not only about what it means to be a scout and to be in personnel and potentially be a GM someday. Uh, you learn an awful lot, and then you learn how to communicate with those scouts to talk about the backgrounds of the players that you that they're evaluating and to provide context with the type of kids that they are. And so you learn very quickly about what it means uh, to, to be an NFL scout because they're asking you the questions that you want to learn about. And so I started a letter writing campaign and it was literally daunting. I mean, I pounded these guys in submission with letters, handwritten notes and things like that. And it was so cool. I have a collection of letters after all these years from all these great head coaches and general managers that actually responded to my inquiries. And so the idea that you hear from Bill Belichick and uh, and, and Hall of Fame coaches like that uh, was really an amazing experience for me. And so one thing led to another. I had a, a couple teams that showed an interest. I went to the Combine. Uh, for a couple of years just to go and speak with a lot of these personnel guys. And so fortunately, the Kansas State Chiefs were the team that offered me the best opportunity to, to, to develop as a young scout. And so the fact that you go into that building, um, working for the likes of Carl Peterson and, and Marty Schottenheimer, who you're going to remember very well, and you walk into the building, Dennis, and you have the likes of Derek Thomas, Joe Montana, Marcus Allen. All these guys are Hall of Fame players. And it's almost like you, you're you're in the Hall of Fame with the Kansas City Chiefs, and that was a great experience. And so you learn so much about uh, what it means to scout and what it means to be a part of a coaching staff. You know, Gunther Cunningham was one of my all-time heroes. He had been the defensive coordinator for the Lions for many years. He taught me so much about evaluating defensive talent. Uh, it allowed me to really develop that defensive mindset about what it makes to, what what it means to be a great defensive player. So I actually cross-checked the defensive linemen uh, throughout my career, no matter what team it was. And it was that education that really served me exceptionally well. Yeah. So many questions there. Like when, when you're a scout at the beginning, are, are you watching tons of tape? Does that continue? Do you go to a game with uh, your eyes wide open or do you have an idea of the, you know, three, four guys, or is it even just like one or two guys that, that you're scouting when you do that? How does that work? Well, it, it's fascinating. So when you when, when you become an area scout or a combine scout, for that matter, you're there to evaluate at each particular school all the play, players that have any chance to play in the NFL. So you can end up going to a school, you're going to see one or two prospects, and then you go to another school like Michigan or Ohio State where you're going to have 15. And so it's all predicated on who can play and who can contribute to, a, to an NFL roster. So we watch a ton of film, all right? Uh, film evaluation is by far my favorite aspect of being an NFL scout. And so I've always enjoyed that no matter what. And uh, just being able to evaluate game-by-game film, watch a player play in his best games and his worst games and to figure out why he played better in some of those games because oftentimes you can determine uh, best fit as to whether this guy can actually help your team or not. So the idea that we watch a boatload of film, uh, we go to a lot of practices, Dennis, and I try to stay at practice as long as the coaching staff will let you. And oftentimes uh, the coaching staffs are really excellent. I've been to practice where they they let you stay until the very end because they trust you. And then obviously the, 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 the game weekends are always great, but that amounts to about five or 10% of all the work that we actually do because so much 
of what we do. And, and, and the great thing about being a long-term NFL scout that has a lot of experience, you develop these great relationships with these coaches that you can trust and the information that they give you um, provides uh, a great perspective on the insights of the character of all the kids. You're able to put those pe- uh, puzzle pieces together so you can actually project what a player is going to be once you get him into your building. You know, you mentioned when you start out, you walked into the, the Chiefs building. You, saw, you know, you see Montana guys, the Hall of Famers like Derek Thomas. And just as an example, like when when you're a scout, do you put more work in on a top guy? Because that's, you know, it's the it's the premium pick. Now, a guy like Derek Thomas, you know, he ended up going fourth overall. He's a Hall of Famer. He's at Alabama. Like to me, that would seem right. like a – I don't want to say an easy scout, but Bailey, you're like, hey, you know, we're going to take this guy. Oh, this, Dennis, guy's, this guy's pretty you're, awesome, you're, you know. You're exactly right. So this is what gives you goosebumps to the scout when you get to see the really special ones. But the truth of the matter is that if, if a guy has any chance whatsoever, you have to evaluate him. So trust me, I get my <laughs> I, I get my opportunity to see the bottom of the barrel talent as well. And we're not going to name who those guys are, Dennis. Well, how often do you go You go to a game and, and you have your list? All right, you know, this guy, this guy's got a chance. But then you'll watch a game and then here, next thing you know, you're, you're, you're ticking off a name and you're saying, hey, what about this guy? And then you, you go back, maybe watch right. that same team and and yep. this guy shows up again. You know, you hear stories about that. That, that happens, huh? You're, you're exactly right, Dennis. And so being able to see a guy, guy live and to see how they compete, not only – uh, how he associates with his teammates in the sidelines, but how hard he plays in a live game. And the funny thing is that it's very interesting because college coaches, the vast majority of them love it when a pro scout comes to their building because oftentimes uh, they'll get the most out of that kid just knowing that the NFL scout is there to evaluate that player. So so oftentimes they'll get a, they'll get a better practice out of that guy than otherwise. Now, obviously, you can look at that in a negative way, too, but at the same time, you get to figure out what motivates a player. And so the idea that we want guys that really have a great passion to play in the National Football League because they love the game so much, it helps in the evaluation process. But you're exactly right, Dennis. You know, guys will show up in a live game setting, and as soon as the guy shows up in that area, that behooves you to go back to the game film to make sure that what you saw that day, this guy's going to do uh, day in and day out in the game day situation over a four or five or six or seven game season. You know what I'm surprised about, and I, I hear it a lot, whether it's you know coaches, GMs, or whatever, they'll go back and they'll tell a story about their scout. They were looking at so-and-so, and they'll say, you know what, our, our scout went out there and he got there as soon as you could at the stadium, and he was walk- watching how he interacted with his offensive lineman. He was uh, looking oh, at yeah. you know what he did with his downtime, and and so many times they they, they point to stuff like that, like two three hours before a game or, or an hour after practice on, on what may have sold them ultimately on 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 making a pick for a guy. That that's a little bit surprising that you know you, you you dig that down. I mean, you have everything that you guys do and all of this tape work, and then it comes down to maybe somebody saying, you know what, before the game, you know, this guy just seemed like everybody liked him. Oh, there's no doubt. And Dennis, you hit on a really important point, okay? I get the games usually two or three hours early. And I get to see guys outside of the locker room when they're just getting dressed. And so I go out to, uh, to pregame, oh, at least 30 minutes before the first player gets out just to see who shows up first. And so the guy that shows up first, you know he's locked in and he's ready to play. And oftentimes it's his demeanor after he shows up first 
when he gets out there that actually can sell a guy exceptionally well. Now, you never want to pin any one thing on a player that's going to prove that he's going to be a great one or not. But you put all those puzzle pieces together to say his game film is great, he's competitive, the coaches tell you he's a great leader and all those types of things. And you put all those things together and you try to get as complete a package on that player as you can so that when you know uh, when he's coming through the door, you know exactly what you have and you're projecting that player accurately. You know, I was listening to NHL radio during uh, the draft, I guess, last month Mm -hmm. sometime, and and the Mm -hmm. son of the former director of safety was on, and, you know, he was just talking about – when his dad would, would get – and back then he was talking about cassette tapes, you know, if they had a like a dirty hit or something. And he said he was mm-hmm. watching him at like, you know, six, seven years old. He's watching his tapes. And he said by the time he was nine years old, sometimes he would run out to the mailbox and he would rip open the tape and he would watch it. And his dad would come home and say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, Shanahan's going to get three games here. You know, it was definitely a slew foot. And I was thinking – you know what? When I was uh, when I knew I was uh, going to talk with you, I, I would imagine that you were getting exposed to uh, oh my you know, some some tape work or, or some coaching. <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, you know with with Bo. What what do you remember oh, about Dennis. that? Oh my goodness! Go back to the old eight millimeter film, <laughs> <laughs> clicking back and forth, and how old school that used to be. I I remember so fondly, Dennis. Of you know, I was probably seven, eight, nine years old. And when Bo would get home from the games, and usually we won, obviously, he would already have the eight millimeter, eight millimeter tack that the reel that he brought home, and we had a projector. And so all of Bo's buddies would be there. So Joe Hayden, all the guys from Cincinnati that he was really close with, they would always come back, and Bo would come in there. All right, men, let's go down and watch the game film. And the guys would all pile down into the basement. I would sit down there. And just watch the film, and oftentimes Bo would probably play a play, oh, maybe eight, nine times before he was comfortable with it. And it was almost like nobody ever got bored that Bo did that. And so that was really my indoctrination, uh, just in watching film and just to see how Bo went about his job. But it was more of the joy of watching film that really was uh, instigated in my character from a very early age. And so by the time I got to be uh, old enough to go in and splice film, uh, it was so funny. I was watching guys that I went to school with. Uh, I remember fondly watching Kurt Mallory, who's now the head coach in Indiana State. I remember watching him on high school film. And so I used to say, boy, hey, Dad, he plays really hard, but can he run fast enough at that size <laughs> to play for us? And so, and so as much as we love Kurt, we knew he was never going to have a day in the NFL, but Bo always had a pension for, for bringing in all those Mallory boys because they were so great for the locker room, which comes as no surprise to anybody. Well, those stories are great, and you know what? Every time you you get a, a player that played for your dad or a coach that coached with him, you know, I never get tired yeah. of, of, of any of those stories. And, you know, I'm glad, that was one of them I was going to ask you about if, if he would bring that that tape home, you know, I had heard, you know, people say, and, and so it's good to have you on here. They would say, you know, tailgates, tailgates around the stadium, you know, they're legendary, but 
they would say, uh, you know, the, the coaches tailgates, whether it was uh, outside the stadium or even back oh, at yeah. the house were, were legendary at the Schembecklers. And people would say that. Yep. And I'd say, you know, well, what's it about? And they'd say, well, we don't really have a lot of stories that we can, you know, share or anything. But well, what, what oh, do you geez, know? Dennis. What can you say about well, the, the tailgates at Oh, my house? goodness. Well, you talk about some of the greatest memories ever. And so all of this is predicated from my, my mom, the legendary Billy Schembeckler, who I still consider the first lady of Michigan football. And so she and, and her best friend, Jane Pilcher, uh, would always have the very best tailgates known to man. And all the coaches, wives, and all the friends that we mentioned, I talked, talked about all the people from Cincinnati that came up, and they would always come over to the game. And Millie had all the best food, not only for the tailgate before the game, but after the game, all the food that came up uh, in the kitchen after the game. So my mom spent, oh, good Lord, the entire week just preparing for that weekend. And so it was amazing how prepared they were and the food. And so you got to understand, my mom, her background was back in rural Mississippi. So make no mistake, she knew how to cook. And so she had the best chili, the best chicken and dumplings, all the best stuff, particularly when it got cold in the winter months, all the warm weather food, all the cold weather food that everybody just loved to eat. And the great thing for me and my dad was, boy, it was the best leftovers for, for the remainder of the week. Mm, what, what about, so, oh, oh, go ahead. Yes, sir. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to jump in. I was, I was going to say cookies too. Cause that, but the only reason I would say that is the for quote. Well, you for used to always say that he'd be on the road. If, if the game looked like it was over, that's when he would start, <laughs> you know, saying, Oh, Millie. Get the cookies ready. Bo's coming home. I mean, I, I don't know. What... Yeah, exactly. Well, she made some. She made some hellacious cookies. Now, now, I understand. You know, Millie's range of talent in in the kitchen was without parallel, if you ask me. And so, there wasn't anything she couldn't do. And so, Bo always ate pretty well. Now, obviously, we had to watch Bo's health as it related to his heart because he had you know heart surgeries and did all the stents and all and those all those angioplasties. Millie really did a great job of, of putting out a menu that was going to be good for Bo as well. And so you it's able to balance out great taste and food and stuff that Bo could eat and, and still maintain some level of health. Yeah. And in your mom, Millie, when I, I'd heard the story that, that Woody, you know, it was maybe towards <clears throat> the end of the, the 10 year war and, he, uh, you know, Bo invites him over to the house. Like, you know, you know, you hear oh. stories that these guys oh, did not. Yeah, well, you we'll ready, yeah, you're ready for this it. one, Dennis? This is, my, this is my favorite Woody Hayes story. Now, Woody was always cantankerous, and he was always difficult to work for, and he always gave all of his assistants all kinds of grief. But that's part of what made him great. And so there was a time, this is after Bo, uh, Woody was not coaching at Ohio State, and my dad was like, but Woody, you haven't come up to the house in a very long period of time. And now that you're not coaching, you need to come up and pay us a visit. And so Woody comes up. It was a beautiful spring afternoon. They had just finished taping uh, the 10-year war, that great video series where Bo and Woody talked about each and every game. I know everybody has seen it. Uh, and so Woody comes up and literally has a driver. Uh, that pulls up in front of our house and Woody gets out, starts walking across the lawn. My dad's all excited to come and see him, meets him out in the middle of our front yard, shakes his hand, and Woody looks Bo right in the eye and he goes, I didn't come here to see you. He walks right past my dad, goes up to my mom, Millie, and says, 
Mrs. Schembechler, thank you so much for having me to your house here today. And little Chevy standing over there, I'm about, oh, good Lord, maybe 9, 10, 11 years old. And oh, my God, nobody ever talked to Bo this way. And that's the day I fell in love with Woody Hayes and, and all that he meant to our family. And gave, obviously, uh, gave my dad his first shot in coaching and um, really built his career into what it, what it became. Well, you know, way back in the, the 20th century, I went to a, a, a Michigan-Ohio State game down in Columbus, and I was, I was taken aback. Like, I knew there was gonna, it was going to be intense, and, you know, I had heard about, uh, you know, the November sky. I mean, everything. You know, you hear all that. You're going to get pulled over on the way down. But yeah. what I was amazed with, and you know, Woody had been, you know, uh, out of coaching and passed away for, for years there. Uh, it was, you know, towards uh, 2000, probably 99. Uh, it, it Just how many guys down there dressed up like Woody Hayes? I mean, the, the T-shirt, the glasses, I mean, the black hat. It was like, it was really like, it was amazing. It was a game day, you know, game day, game weekend. Yep. But you see, yep. you know, hundreds, you see hundreds of Woody Hayes down there. No doubt. Well, yeah. the same thing happened with Bo, though. I mean, I, I remember vividly uh, how many of my buddies dressed up in Bo for Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, those, those were the days, Dennis. I mean, everybody thought that everybody was, was a big Bo Schembechler fan. Now, obviously, uh, that doesn't happen near as much because so many people have forgotten about Bo in this era. But the funny thing was, I, I have a son, and his name is Glenn E. Bo Schembechler IV. And so uh, I actually had a conversation about two weeks ago. I go, Bo, what are you going to be for Halloween? And he goes, I think I want to be my papa. <laughs> and so can you imagine? I make my home here in Columbus, Ohio. Can you imagine Bo's grandson dressing up as his grandfather and going out and trying to get candy? Yeah, you better screen some of that candy afterwards. How come How come uh, none of you Schembecklers ever go by the name Glad? I mean, Bo, uh, well, Chevy's. There's a story be- All right. Yeah, there, there's a story behind that, Dennis. And so my my the legendary my legendary grandmother Betty Schembeckler, who if you if you want to know anything about my dad and his personality traits, it all came from her, okay? And so she gets married uh, to my grandfather and obviously he is Glenn E. Uh, senior and and she hated the name Glenn okay <laughs> she just despised it because I'm not calling you Glenn on a regular basis so she sat down with a pencil and paper and started coming up with potential nicknames and she decided that she can take the last name Schembechler and turn it into a nickname and so she spelled out she goes how about Shemmy and so she spelled out S-C-H-E-M-Y and then she decides, oh, the C looks like crap in there. So she takes the C out, and it's spelled S-H-E-M-Y. And from that, that day forward, she called her husband Shemmy. Mm. And so I'm actually the second Shemmy in, in this four-generation program. And when I was born, because I'm, I'm the only son between Bo and Millie, is that my dad wanted to honor my, my grandfather because we never met. He passed away about six years before I was born. That uh, they wanted to honor my grandfather. And so my, my grandma, they named my nickname is after my grandfather. And so that basically stuck. And so that's kind of how we kind of rotated the nickname back and forth because when Bo got the nickname, he had two older sisters that didn't know how to pronounce brother. And so it came out just Bobo, 
and <laughs> the rest of that is history. So that's kind of how the whole nickname thing has been built around that. So uh, now that my bow is 11 years old, we're going to start having conversations about when he becomes a father and names his kid Shemmy. Because <laughs> we'll just keep rotating back and forth. And that's really how this whole thing got started. And so really, you know, I mean, obviously official documents and all those things, we've got to put Glenn on there. But in terms of our friends and all the uh, relationships that we've had for a long period of time, We've either been known as Bo or Shemmy. I've never How's heard that. I like it. You know, I'd never heard that story before. So uh, yeah. that mm-hmm. was fantastic. I always remember, you know, Don Canham telling the story, the the late Michigan AD, that, you know, when he yep. hired Bo, how much, uh, you know, backlash he would get when he would get some letters there and say, what are you hiring this uh, German butcher for? Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, what about you for, you know, the, he's a, there was no bigger Bo fan than, than Bob Eufer, you know, General oh, Pat yeah. Schembechler. Now, you know, he was a broadcaster, and so yeah, Bo, yeah. Would, Bo would keep his uh, arm's length from, from most of the media. But, you know, Bob was, right. uh, you know, kind of cert- a little different. But, you know, did, so did Eufer ever come over, or is that just a game oh, type gee, thing? Oh, did he ever come over? He was at our house all the time. You got to understand, his house was about five minutes from our house. So he would come over all the time, and we loved having Mr. Eufer. I mean, you talk about – if there ever was a Michigan man that ever <laughs> lived, it would be Bob Eufer. Okay. Yeah. And so I remember a story. Uh, uh, oh, I was probably, it was, it was after we turned down the Texas A&M job. Okay. And Bob Eufer comes over and you got to understand there's a guy, here's a guy that it never looked like he ever had a bad day in his life. Okay. And he comes over to our house. And he's got this dour look on his face, like he's not smiling, which is very atypical for Bob Eufer. He comes down into the basement where my dad's office is, and he, he comes down here. He goes, hey, hey Bo, I, I got something I got something I got to show you, all right? And he comes down there, and I'm sitting there watching him. And he opens up his mouth and starts smiling, and across the front part of his teeth, he's got go blue spelled on his teeth. <laughs> you start cracking up. Yeah. I go, hey, you, you, you. and so you forget, hey, you think I'm committed enough? I spelled go blue on my teeth. <laughs> so my dad cool. starts cracking up. He goes, you for your nuts, man, but we love you, buddy. <laughs> a one of a kind. A, a, an absolute. I mean, who, who, would come, who would come up with that, Dennis, these days? Nobody would. No, of all the of all the different things you hear and and different things that go on, I actually hadn't exactly. seen anybody try to go with uh, you know spelling something out on their on their teeth. You know, I, I've got a couple more scouting questions. If I go back to that, you know, how much do you look at uh, the Pro Football Focus? I mean, these are guys that some of them coach, some of them were scouts. I mean, they do a pretty good job. What do no you doubt, think? no doubt. I think they do a pretty good job. It can give you some context just in terms of production. But I will say this, uh, this is the greatest thing that has happened to scouting as it relates to going, doing cross-checks. So I, I, have, I evaluate the linebackers for, for the Raiders, and I, oftentimes you got to evaluate these guys on special teams. And so Pro Football Focus has a component to it in which you can click on all the special team snaps for all of the players that you're looking at. And so that, to me is a really uh, productive way for us to go about doing our job because then you get to see all those special team snaps and then you combine that with their defensive evaluation. 
And that, to me, is the greatest thing about pro football focus to me. Because obviously, Dennis, you have to have, you have to rely on your own uh, expertise and your experience to evaluate talent. You don't want anybody else to do it for you. Uh, but uh, oftentimes you use it as a tool uh, to help you learn about the players that you're evaluating. And so if a guy is productive and the pro football focus uh, um, provides that information to you, it gives you an extra contextual evaluation of that player's talent, but it doesn't replace what you do. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You know, I had a scout. I, I sat by a guy one time. I didn't know I was sitting next to a scout. And that was a long time ago. I was, you know, I, I finally I, I got to ask him a question or two and, uh, you know, it was a good conversation. I liked it because being in sports talk, you know, once in a while you could say, well, I was talking right. to a scout, mm-hmm. uh, which is invaluable, you know, and it's nice to be on there. But at one point, you know, I told him, I said, you know what, it seems like uh, being a scout would be pretty easy for quarterback, running back, you know, wide receivers. Like, you know, we know which guys are the best. He said, you know, you probably know just enough to be dangerous, but you got to watch every single game and every single snap. And then right. you got to project it. And he said, like, I said, that's what yeah. most people say to me, like the fans. They'll say, hey, I know that, you know, player. This I've, I've watched all of his games. Well, I don't know if you've watched every single one and every single snap, but sometimes, you know, you can with the most visible positions. I mean, you you can see greatness there. And, you know, it's always interesting to me when it comes down to the scouts because sometimes you'll see a guy coming out of college you say, why isn't this guy getting drafted? And then they'll throw that out like, well, the you know, the scouts say he doesn't have this or that. Right. Well, it's really important. I mean – a lot of scouts are going to tell you this, Dennis. The toughest position to evaluate is quarterback because there's so many nuances to evaluating uh, quarterbacks, not only height, weight, speed, athletic ability, but the mental capacity, the decision-making, and foremost, leadership. Leadership is a component that is the hardest to evaluate. And obviously, um, uh, you really have to have an understanding because this guy's going to lead your franchise. If you, if you take a quarterback high in the draft, you have to be able to say, this guy's going to come in and be the bell cow for your organization as a leader. And so taking all those things into account, obviously you, you can evaluate decision-making and accuracy and ability to get in the right play based on the play that's called and how the defense lines up against you and what they give you coverage-wise. You can evaluate those things. But you want to be able to say that when the money is down, that this guy can make the play that, that's needed, needed to, uh, to win the game in the end. And so those are all things that are really important for quarterbacks, and, and um, it, it gets pretty complicated, as you can imagine. Well, you know what? When people ask me, what do I think about you know the, the recent success that Ohio State has had against Michigan, I say things like that. It's going to take a special guy at every position to – you know, you, you you can't win. You know, ten in a row. They got to just turn it around with with getting one. But it is going to take you know a, a special team and special no players now. To uh, there's no. I mean, you could say, yeah, it, it could be the quarterback player, it could be the safety player, it could be the defensive yeah. tackle player, whatever else. Uh, yep. There's a lot of components there, and it's just going to take. It, it is going to take a great effort to be able to turn it around. Because the one thing, and it's, a, I guess, you're going to ask you the question being down there in Columbus, mm-hmm. it doesn't mm-hmm. seem with all of the success, Jimmy, that, that Ohio state takes Michigan lightly. They still seem like they're going into that game. Oh, like no. it, it's, it's means that everything is, in the world. It does mean everything in the world. And I think you have to give a lot of credit to urban Meyer and Ryan day, just in terms of not only the tradition that urban Meyer brought back. Uh, so, so for, for Ryan day, 
to continue that tradition. Now, obviously, he's only going into a second year this year, but it just seems like the transition is about as seamless as, as, as you can imagine. It reminds me so much of when Gary Moeller took over for my dad and how the tradition just continued from there. So it reminds me a lot of that. Now, for Michigan to come back, obviously things have to change. But I think uh, what Jim has done in the recruiting venue has, has been a great job, over the last, especially the last couple of years, that hopefully uh, things will change. Now, they're going to change at some point, Dennis. We just got to figure out when it's going to be. Well, that's right. And I always say, like, with, uh, with Jim, if you were looking for, you know, to, you, know you, you mentioned that the, uh, a Michigan man, you know, there's, there's no better mold than, than Bob Eufer. Well, you know, I, I know Jim you know, he guaranteed a – uh, a win over him after losing to, you know, Ricky Foggy and oh, in, yeah. in 86 and all that. He knows exactly what it takes. So he does know, like you'd say, well, the first thing, the first order of business will be somebody that knows exactly what that rivalry is all about and, you know, what makes right. people tick. And it, it seems like Jim has all right. of that. So, uh, yeah. you know, there, we could, I could poke, we could sit here for an hour and I could say, well, he needs to do this. He needs to do that. But I, I do think. Yeah. Yep. And I am hoping, um, you know, I'm, I'm rooting for the story here that wouldn't it be great after a guy that didn't have the success in the first five years and, you know, had right. a lot of people down, was able to turn it around. And right. he does seem right. like he has a lot of that material to be able to do it. Right. Yeah. And, and, and we can we can go into real detail with the X's and O's and all that stuff. But we'll save that for another day, Dennis. <laughs> but I can just see, I, I, I can just see, we got. I mean, getting the quarterback thing right is really important, and then obviously getting the defensive personnel because Ryan Day, I mean, a brilliant play caller on the offensive side of the ball. We just got to be able to cover these guys a little bit better and create more pressure. That's going to be the key for Michigan. That sounds good. Well, yeah, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to talk about football. We don't know. I mean, we're taking this one. No, uh, day by day. One, one interview at a time, Dennis. That's the key. Well, you know what? It, it, things don't look very good right now. Here we are taping this on the uh, Sunday, July mm-hmm. the 12th, and we haven't had a very good week or two in the country with uh, with cases. Right. And, very you know, true. If we were sitting here two or three weeks ago, we could say, hey, it, it, there's some optimism. Things are opening it up. Right. We're, we're taking things, right. you know, day by day. Right. But, you know, we've, we've, had, we've had a gigantic step back here, and so – you know, mm-hmm. asking you or anybody else on a day like today, you know, I can see the the skepticism for sure. But if we could stack well, a couple days or weeks here, and you know, maybe uh, you know, yeah. maybe we'll see some football. Maybe. Well, the only the only thing that I think can help in this scenario is praying to the big guy upstairs. <laughs> and I I don't mean to sound like I'm pessimistic, but I just think it's, it's gonna it's gonna take uh, something of um, uh, I don't know how you coin it, but something of uh, divine intervention. All right. Oh, I thought and you were I talking about. I thought you were talking about Bo. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. The, Bo reports to this guy. Okay, <laughs> let's make that perfectly clear. But I don't want to make it sound like it, we're pessimistic because as of as of today, Dennis. I mean, the, the NFL scouts. We're 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 going to get uh, word on when we can report to camp here very soon, and so. I'm fairly certain that the NFL is going to play on no matter what, okay? And my hope is is that obviously the college dynamic is a much different one because you're talking about student-athletes up on campus and that type of thing. Uh, hopefully there are, there are systems and programs in place that are going to protect the players and the coaches and the staff as well that's going to allow them to play the game that they love. Because you talk to any player or coach, 
in today's college football. Uh, they, most of them will take on the risk of, of if, if they contract the disease, they think they can come back. And obviously, when you look at the statistics uh, that arise from the, the younger people, that the vast majority of them are going to be okay over the long run. It's just a matter of how they manage the disease once they get it. And so that, to me, is going to be the key component as to how we go forward. And I can tell you, Dennis, everybody I talk to, and they all know what I do, they are all asking, are we going to play this year? And you can tell that the fan base is locked in, and they definitely want to see football. Obviously, they want to do it in the safest way possible. But I think in many ways for us as a country to go forward, uh, I think playing the game of football and watching football on TV, even if you can't go to the games, uh, would be a good thing when it's all said and done. Well, I agree with you on that. Well, it's uh, at Shemi Scout. I know that there's various uh, platforms digitally people can follow you, mm-hmm. but there's no C in Shemi, as you pointed out uh, earlier. I certainly appreciate your time. I think we can appeal to the heavens, uh, like you said there, and. You know, yep. uh, say hi to little Bo and, and, and hear some advice if if Michigan does and when they do turn it around. Don't send little Bo out there, you know, dressed as uh, as your dad for Halloween. <laughs> We're going to cross that bridge when we come to it, Dennis. That's, that's right. Hey, all the best. <laughs> Thanks for uh, spending so much time with me, and uh, hopefully you're, you're watching games somewhere this fall. Hope and pray. Thanks, Dennis. Have a great day. See you later, Shem. Thanks. Take right, care. Bye. There he bye. is, Shemmy Shembeckler. Here on podcast number 43. I said I'd get to how to feel about sports in the last three weeks of July. It was a little bit of foreshadowing there because, you know, you you look and you have Friday the 24th. That's going to be opening day for the Tigers. So that's even less than three weeks away. That's even less than two weeks away. So we've got that. So we're going to have baseball coming around first. And, and if they can get their thing going, this is, you know, a little bit of how I think this uh, could turn around where we're feeling more optimistic about college football, pro football, and everything else. And this weekend, nobody was feeling very positive about it. In fact, people like uh, – if they had any optimism, that is dented, and uh, uh, there's good reason to be skeptical. All of that, I get. But the the reason for possible optimism is that if we could stack a couple days and weeks and get into that 24th where the Tigers open up and baseball is going a week before then, you have the NBA opening up in Orlando and then the NHL. And if those leagues get going – and there's not, you know, we, we know they're going to have positive tests, but if we feel like, um, you know, it's turned a little bit where some of the cases are, are trending down and are all of the things, all of the data that we look at is trending down a little bit. Well, uh, you know, we can have some optimism then if the games are going. And then if that happens, probably in short order after that, NFL is going to be going to training camp. They'll make a decision in college. You know, it was before they canceled these non-conference games around August 1st where they really needed to make a decision. But by canceling those non-conference games, you get, you know, you buy yourself uh, three weeks before you even have to make a decision about uh, the upcoming regular season. And I thought it was interesting. I've I've seen a lot of people, I don't know if they're arguing or just looking at things, probably things didn't make sense. Like how can Nebraska travel all the way across the country to play Rutgers, but Rutgers can't 
you know, go 10 miles down the street to, to play Monmouth or however close, you know, Monmouth, it's a lot closer than Nebraska. And it sounds like each league has their own set of protocols to be able to play football and they're not all matching up. Now, I do think that the Big Ten could have called the Mid-American Conference and said, hey, you know, these are the guidelines for the protocol if we're going to play football and you need to match them. But it probably has to do with the amount of if they were going to play, how they're not going to have fans in there and how they want to keep this down to a, a, a possible manageable season just to get through it. And knowing that so much revenue comes from, from fans in the stands, that uh, I think that's why they've, they've limited the number of games here and seeing what they can do with it even before they have to go to their last resort, which would be pushing the regular season back from fall to spring. You know, speaking of the Tigers, they, are, they broadcast two of their, their spring-slash-summer training games on their website, uh, tigers.com, mlb.com, and look at here. And off the glove of Ken Lawyer, that was going to be a. Let's see, let's, let's, uh, let's thank Major League Baseball and the DetroitTigers.com and Jordan Zimmerman's on the mound. So this is Dan Dickerson and Dan Petrie here, the, the live feed. Let's see if we can take a couple pitches. Who's coming up here? I see Grayson Griner is on at first base. It'd be really nice if we had somebody coming up here. Let's see. Let's see. Here's Dan and uh, Dan and Dan. <laughs> no, Dan. actually, yeah. I wanted to leave you up to <laughs> to make the call. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but this will be, I mean, obviously oh. some hard contact Makes in the sense. first inning. That's a sharp ground ball single. I was going to say this is kind of a big inning for Jordan Zimmerman just to to bounce back, get a good feeling. I said one batter, one pitch, one hit. That looked like Christian Stewart, but they didn't say who it was. So I'm going to go two more pitches here in this uh, Tiger inner squad game. Uh, Casario. Let's see who that is. Taking a look at that. Castro. That's who that is. Had to go to my uh, roster. Always trying to get that yeah. leadoff hitter in every inning. You know, uh, Jacoby Jones let off the first with a base hit and led it to a to a, a big inning. Two pitches. Right there, that uh, the, the error or, you know, whatever we're going to call that uh, by Candelario. The yeah. ball hit to Candelario. And we're calling it an yeah. error because you said so. Okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it just pitch. leads to another one where you got to really battle, and to your point, about trying to throw a lot of, a lot of uh, pitches again to try to get out of the inning. Curveball. That's maybe been his best pitch. All right. There's a little baseball for you. All right. That's going to do it. Thanks to Shemi Shembeckler, scout for the Las Vegas Raiders, for joining me. Yeah, we're getting into now the, the middle of July. And as far as, uh, you know, sports goes, mention that calendar. You know, this, this whole week, nothing. And really, the following week, nothing until Friday. Get that circled on the calendar. Speaking of the Tigers, they're, they're opening day as they will uh, take on the Reds. That is the 24th. I got it circled. I'm looking at my calendar right now. Circled, 24th. All right, that'll do it. I'll have a lot of podcasts between now and then. Thanks to Shemi. Thanks, for y- thanks to you for listening. That'll do it. Talk to you this week. Good afternoon. Good afternoon.